Quarterback Club has the best barbecue ribs, roasted chicken, and flame-broiled burgers in town. Be sure to check them out for breakfast, too, serving Monday through Saturday. Always available for dine-in or take-out. For good food, good service, and good friends, it's the Quarterback Club in Northfield. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my best to find experts who can address your topic. We have a great show for you today. We're going to learn about the U.S. Navy's aircraft carriers and carrier aviation in general. Our guest today is retired U.S. Navy Captain Stephen Beckvon-Pecos, and as you might imagine, since military aviators all have call signs, Steve Beckvon-Pecos' call sign is Baron. Captain Beckvon-Pecos is a native of La Jolla, California. He's a graduate of the University of Southern California, where he earned a Bachelor of Science in Industrial and Systems Engineering. He also earned a Master of Arts in National Security and Strategic Studies from the U.S. Naval War College and an MBA from the University of Colorado. Barron was a career naval aviator, flying both EA-6B Prowlers and the F-A-18 Hornet. He also commanded a Naval Aviation Squadron, served in space operations at NORAD U.S. Space Command, and aboard the USS John C. Stennis as operations officer, among many other duties before he retired from the U.S. Navy. As Deputy Assistant Chief of Staff for Readiness with Commander, Naval Air Force, U.S. Pacific Fleet, Steve Beckvon-Pecos now provides leadership on the headquarters staff to ensure effective training leads to full aircrew and aircraft readiness for all naval aviation assets in the Pacific Fleet. Captain Steve Beckbone-Pecos, Baron, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks, John. Good morning, and hello to everybody in Minnesota that can hear you. Yeah, you're sitting in San Diego this morning, right? That's absolutely correct. How's the weather out in San Diego? The, the weather in San Diego right now is in the mid-60s, which is cold for San Diego. I know folks in Minnesota don't think that's cold at all, um, <laughs> but it's uh, the typical May gray, and then it'll be June gloom. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Baron, let's start a little bit with your with show today with a little bit of background on you and, and your career. Uh, what, what drew you to naval aviation coming out of, uh, uh, out of college? So actually, I was drawn to naval aviation when I was a little kid. I grew up here in San Diego in La Jolla. And San Diego, as you know, is a huge Navy town on the West Coast uh, with aircraft carriers, Miramar Naval Air Station at the time. It's now Marine Corps Air Station Miramar. And uh, I went to La Jolla Country Day School, which is right underneath the departure path of the, uh, the fighters taken off out of Miramar. So I was always interested in potentially flying for the Navy. We'd go to the air shows in the summertime at Miramar. And then when I was six years old, a friend of our family flew in from Vietnam when his squadron came back from flying in combat, and he sat me in the cockpit of his F-4 Phantom. And uh, even though it seemed big and scary and dangerous, I thought right then, this is what I want to do. Sold. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I never stopped you know, pursuing that ever since uh, that time. So I know from your bio that uh, you flew 74 combat missions, uh, missions over Iraq, uh, said in your bio, Iran as well. I want to learn a little bit about that. And and over Afghanistan, uh, you accumulated 3,200 flight hours and 745 
arrested landings on aircraft carriers. Uh, maybe you can tell us a, a quick sea story or two about a mission or a difficult carrier landing or, or something that you know something that was memorable for you. One or two quick stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so all those uh, hours in traps just means that I was old. I've been doing it for a long time, or I was before I was retired. Uh, I had one combat mission against Iran in 1988. It was called Operation Praying Mantis. And uh, that's when we were escorting the reflag Kuwaiti oil tankers through the Strait of Hormuz, and they were attacking them with silkworm missiles. Mm. Uh, so that might be fun for your listeners to go look up. Uh, but that was just one mission, and that was on my first deployment uh, as a young pilot. Um, then later on in my career, I flew two combat missions uh, in Iraq for Operation Southern Watch, and then one uh, in Afghanistan. Um, so one of the things that's great about aircraft carriers is whether you're in the Persian Gulf or the Indian Ocean or the Pacific, is it's a mobile airfield. So, for instance, when we were flying into Afghanistan, it's a long way from the ocean up to Kandahar and Kabul, which is the area of operations that we were flying in. And we don't have any airfields there, so you're able to use an aircraft carrier to, to do the missions uh, like we needed to do there and go that far. Um, but I will tell you one particular um, night trap that I had when I was a young pilot. It was before my first deployment. It was in 87 in the wintertime, and we were up in the North Pacific. Mm -hmm. And um, it was very cold. Obviously, you're going to wear dry suits the whole time in case you eject and you go into the ocean so that you can have an extended survival time and hopefully get rescued. But I was coming back to the ship, it was dark, it was snowing, and I lost my navigation gyros, and they were just spinning in the cockpit, so I had no idea really what my heading was, other than a magnetic compass. So I flew um, what's called a no-gyro approach, and I don't even know if they have to do those anymore, because the technology is so much better with GPS and, and other technology. So basically, the uh, air traffic controller is telling me to start turn, and then stop turn, and I'm just listening to him, making my way toward the ship at night in the snow i broke out at minimums and uh, landed on the carrier which was obviously very dark and uh, that was probably the trap that i remember the most because i was so glad to be back <laughs> well i'm wigging me out now just telling that story I, i'm glad you made it back uh we've known Thank each you. other for a few years now so uh, I, I had not heard that story before yeah uh so you also had command of a squadron uh what was it like to command a squadron and and what you, what kind of leadership lessons did you learn from that job so commanding a squadron is you know for every naval aviator naval flight officer is the ultimate dream you know you have a squadron of your own you're in charge you get to run it the way that you think is right um you know exercise all the leadership the techniques that you've learned throughout your career it was fantastic and one of the things that I learned was that although you're ultimately accountable for everything that happens in the squadron, its performance, the performance of the people, uh, keeping your officers and sailors safe and bringing them back uh, when you go on deployment, you have to trust and lead your people and let them shine. So I've always been a fan of giving people credit that are um, junior to me. So if somebody's going to give a brief to somebody very senior and they're you know, a lieutenant or a lieutenant commander in my squadron, and as the commander, I'm a, I'm a commander as the commanding officer. I don't want to give their brief. I want them to give their brief to the admiral so that they can, you know, shine and show what they can do. And um, that was one of the lessons that I learned. Same thing with the sailors. The sailors are so expert in their fields that there is no reason to not let them shine and show what they can do to brief people to tell you what's wrong and how they think that you should fix it and to go on their recommendations. Mm -hmm. 
So now you're uh, you're retired from the from the Navy from the active duty force, uh, and you're you're working now as the deputy assistant chief of staff for readiness uh, for Commander Naval Air Forces Pacific or or ComNav Air Pack uh, Air Pack for short. Uh, you work for the Air Boss. Uh, can you say a little more about what that position at the Three Star Aviation Type Command headquarters entails? Absolutely. So the Air Boss is a three star admiral, uh, a vice admiral, Kenneth Whitesell. He's a great guy. He sits in his headquarters in uh, San Diego with his staff and basically it has kind of two hats. He's Commander Naval Air Forces Pacific, which is the West Coast type command for aviation in charge of all the aircraft carriers and air crew uh, manning, training, and equipping them. And then he's also the head of the Naval Aviation Enterprise, which is sort of the business side of naval aviation, along with the Naval Air Systems Command and the OPNAV staff in the Pentagon, where all the resources come from. You know, they do the budgeting and the money. Um, so what I do in, uh, in the N-40 directorate, which is where I work, is to focus on air crew training uh, and readiness. So we... Um, manage the flying hour program. We give out all the flying hours that the different squadrons use to pay for their fuel and the parts to fix their aircraft. We have representatives on the staff in, in our directorate from every community. So they're uh, lieutenant commanders or commanders who are experts in their community and they focus on readiness. We coordinate with the different type wings. So a type wing could be like the strike fighter wing. Uh, in Lemoore that has all the F-18s under it, or it could be the uh, electronic attack wing Pacific up in Whidbey Island, Washington, uh, that has all the E-18G growlers in it. Um, and when then we support the, the three four-star fleet commanders. So Compact Fleet that's headquartered in Hawaii, that's my boss's boss as AirPac. Um, they're in charge of the Pacific Fleet. You've got United States Fleet Forces Command in Norfolk that's in charge of uh, the Atlantic Fleet, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then Naval Forces Europe and Africa in Naples, Italy. Um, And then those uh, four-star fleet commanders, in turn, support the geographic combatant commanders, whether it's commander of Indo-PACOM, also in Hawaii, CENTCOM uh, in the Persian Gulf, uh, UCOM, etc., SOUTHCOM. And we have responsibilities all around the world. So one thing we do is we develop the Master Aviation Plan for all the aircraft carriers and the squadrons, and that supports the Global Force Master Allocation Plan. I know that's complicated, but that's <laughs> when Secretary of Defense and the Joint Chiefs of Staff come up with basically a plan for all the different military services and what they're going to be doing throughout a fiscal year. And then we develop the plan for what the carriers and the squadrons are going to do. And then if we have to deviate from that based on real-world operations, we do that. Mm-hmm. So carrier maintenance schedules tend to drive much of the planning. We plan the transitions when they go from like F-18s to F-35s. The carriers do home port changes. Um, and then real-world events will happen that you don't plan for, such as Operation Tomodachi, which was the tsunami response in Japan in 2011. Nobody plans for that. Right. But when you're going to respond to something like that, you've got to change the plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I just dawned on me that since you're 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 in charge of the readiness piece, uh, the training opportunities that uh, are up at Fallon, Nevada, does that is that still uh, a big thing for all the the, the uh, air wings that are flying off the carriers? They go up there and train regularly still. Absolutely. So there's um, a couple different times uh, where people will go to Fallon and fly. Uh, some people will do it when they're going through the fleet replacement squadron and they go up there for missions to learn how to um, fight the airplane, whether they're doing air-to-ground bombing missions or they're fighting in air-to-air. 
Then once you're in the fleet, you'll go there for the advanced readiness program, which is kind of early in your workup cycle to go with just your squadron and get some kind of customized training. And then later on in workups, we have what we call air wing Fallon, where all the different squadrons in the air wing go together to Fallon for about a month and do very high-end training. Uh, Top Gun is up there. Uh, the different weapon schools that support the different communities, like Havoc uh, for the Growlers, and that is just the quintessential pinnacle of naval aviation tactical air training. Okay. Uh, so we'll take a break, quick break here. Audience reminder, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Navy Captain Steve Beckbone-Pecos, who now serves as Deputy Assistant Chief of Staff for Readiness to the Commander, Naval Air Forces Pacific. Uh, so, so, Baron, let's get into the meat of our topic today, carrier aviation and U.S. Navy aircraft carriers. Uh, how many aircraft carriers does the U.S. Navy currently have? Uh, fill me in. So uh, that's a great question, John. We have 11 aircraft carriers. Uh, some of them are, are pretty new. Um, you know, and they're just being built. There's others planned in the future. Some of them, like the Nimitz, is, is the oldest carrier we have currently. Um, and they're home ported uh, on the West Coast and on the East Coast. Uh, some of them are in carrier maintenance at any one time, so we don't have 11 that we could, you know, put to sea today. Uh, some of them are going through uh, reactor core overhauls, which is a several-year process in the midlife of the carrier where they really uh, they take out the reactor and replace it uh, for the fuel. Um, and so that's what we use, the 11 you know, some portion of that. So the carriers that we build today, like the Ford class, I'm assuming those are designed to have a service life of 50 to 60 years, maybe? Absolutely. And, you know, every carrier uh, has different deployment schedules and uses up its nuclear fuel at different rates. But in general, we refuel them halfway through their life and then try and get them to 50 years. Some of them have been extended. Uh, some of them have been, been retired early, mostly the conventionals uh, before that were built before the nuclear-powered ones. Um, because they just become expensive to maintain, and we always want to upgrade the technology with the newest thing, like the Ford class. Right. And speaking of the Ford class, that is a uh, a dramatic improvement, as I understand from uh, from the Nimitz class in almost every way. Is that is that is that correct? Yeah, I, I don't know if I would say it's a dramatic improvement. I mean, it's definitely an upgrade, and it is an improvement. And and mostly, what it is is an incorporation of new technologies, like a me- electromagnetic. Uh, catapults instead of steam catapults you know that's a significant change in the way that ships run because even though you're powering an aircraft carrier with nuclear power it's really just an exotic way to boil water and turn it into steam and it's steam that powers things like the catapults and the arresting gear engines so it definitely um, does that along with the fact that you know the internet was invented after the nimitz was built and there's so much more infrastructure required for uh, online things and, and integration throughout the ship and then the aircraft have gotten more uh, technologically advanced as well so we have to have the aircraft carriers be able to keep up and everything moves ahead together so on a typical aircraft carrier today uh how many how many crew members are on board and then how large is the air wing uh personnel wise so the ship's crew is about 3500 officers and sailors the air wing brings about another 2,500. Um, it depends. Sometimes they're a little bit smaller uh, based on uh, different things that they're going to be doing. So you'll end up with about 
5,000 to maybe 6,000. 6,000 would be a little high, but there's about, you know, there's at least 5,000 people uh, on an aircraft carrier when it's deployed. Okay. They also have about 75 to 80 aircraft, depending on the mix of, of what kinds of aircraft you're taking. And then inside the, the crew and in the air wing, there's all kinds of career fields and specialties. So, um, you know, everybody has a different job. Uh, there's uh, people that have been training uh, for years to be uh, engineering specialists, reactor specialists, air traffic controllers. There's medical personnel. Um, if you look on the flight deck, you know, like in Top Gun, everybody's wearing a different colored shirt that, that identifies what they do for a living. And so the flight deck is just a big exotic dance of people doing exactly what they're trained to do in concert with all these other people trained to do what they do with the aircraft moving around and it's done mostly by 19 year olds which i think is fascinating yeah uh, it's incredible uh, I, I i deployed on board uh ranger uss ranger for her last deployment uh back in 92 93 uh, she was 37 years old when we got underway on her deployment on her last deployment but i can remember sitting up on uh, vultures row which is sort of a, a high catwalk area overlooking the whole flight deck and just being amazed at that dance that you talk about where we're moving moving planes around on the flight deck and uh, how dangerous it is with the intakes and the jet blast. And everything is just choreographed so perfectly. Uh, the professionalism of those those 19-year-old kids on the flight deck just always amazed me. Absolutely. I made seven deployments over the course of my career on aircraft carriers. And from the first day to the last day, I was still amazed that we do what we do. It's it's just, especially for people so young, you know, fresh out of high school, to be having that much responsibility, working in that dangerous environment, and being just the utmost professional. It's just it's just phenomenal to watch. And when you bring distinguished visitors aboard, uh, essentially tourists on the aircraft carrier, you bring the families on for a Tiger cruise. It's really fun to be able to showcase what everybody can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the mix of aircraft that is in a typical air wing? What, what, what planes are, are in that air wing? Yeah, so we'll typically have four squadrons of strike fighters, either F-18s or F-35s, some mix of those. The F-35 is new, so it's going to deploy for the first time uh, in the coming year. Um, then we'll also have uh, EA-18G growlers, like I said before, based at Whidbey Island. Uh, there's one base for, for both coasts. And those are electronic attack aircraft uh, that do electronic surveillance measures, countermeasures. They can shoot the harm missile. Uh, they carry air-to-air missiles. Um, you have E-2 Hawkeyes, and we're transitioning from the E-2C to the E-2D, which is a much more improved version. And that's carrier airborne early warning. Uh, they're like the air traffic control in the sky, and they have the big, huge radar that you see spinning around on the top that is just an amazing uh, capability. We've got helicopters, both uh, the HSM squadrons, which are anti-submarine warfare, and the HSC squadrons, which are uh, strike combat. Um, and everybody, you know, does their different missions uh, together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually assigned uh, right there at the old Naval Air Station Miramar for my very first uh, tour in the Navy with uh, the E-2 Hawkeye squadron, VAW-116, yeah. the Sun Kings. And I used to chuckle because all the guys in those squadrons – uh, they were very proud of the job they did for airborne command and control and, and early warning missions, but uh, they, they had to admit that, yes, our plane is ugly, but it's slow. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember that back when you know the Tomcats and the E-2s were at Miramar, and yep. now the E-2s, uh, 
the Airborne Command and Control Wing and, and all the E2s are up in Point Magoo, which is also in California, but farther north. It, as a as a native San Diegan, it was hard for me to watch Miramar go back to the Marine Corps. It was a Marine Corps air station a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and they closed El Toro and moved down there. And then Top Gun, which is at Miramar in uh, in, t- in the movie Top Gun, then that moved to Fallon. And so there were a lot of changes. But, yeah, the E-2 is, is an amazing plane and very difficult to land on the carrier. Yeah. Probably the hardest plane to land on the carrier right now. Yeah. Uh, so, so Baron, you, you help lead the training and readiness efforts uh, for U.S. Navy air crew in the Pacific. Uh, what, what do you think is the most challenging aspect of your job with regard to air crew and aircraft readiness? So I would say the... The most challenging part of it, and this is true for you know our type command, we're Air Force, the Air Forces. There's also the surface forces for the surface ships, the submarine forces for the submarines, the uh, Naval Expeditionary Combat Command for the Riverine guys and the Seabees. Um, it's always um, trying to do everything we want to do given the budgets that we have. So the staffs in the Pentagon do an amazing job of building a budget every year. They do planning and then they program it into different programs like uh, the F-35 program. Then they do the actual budgeting. How much money are we going to put to each individual different program? And then of course we have to execute it. And in the Pentagon, they, they work with Congress because Congress is the, is the body that funds the government. So it all starts in Congress and then the budget gets given to the, um, Secretary of Defense and the secretaries of the military departments and the services get it and then we get it. So the money that we get in any fiscal year um, we use to uh, do the flying hour program like I talked about. We have to um, build aircraft carriers and submarines. We don't do submarines but aircraft carriers, aviation, uh, aircraft themselves. We have to buy parts. We have to buy fuel, um, you know, tanker support training ranges simulators there's a lot of stuff to do there's always more to do than you know because we don't have an unlimited budget so it's a it's a a balancing act if you will trying to figure out how exactly to do all the different things you are doing with the um the money that we get and the american taxpayers fund it all so we're very conscious of the fact that we have to be good stewards of our resources uh, and we are um but you know, in, in execution, especially when plans change, sometimes the plan that you had for where money's going to go or what you're going to put it toward ends up needing to change. And so then we have to um, be very creative and flexible. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the operational tempo or op tempo, as it is called, uh, for the U.S. Navy's aircraft carriers? Uh, and, and tell us a little bit about what a deployment cycle looks like. Absolutely. So we have what we call the Optimized Fleet Readiness Plan, or OFRP, and that is the cycle of an aircraft carrier's uh, complete workups from the maintenance phase, uh, when they come back from a deployment and they go into maintenance. It could be significant maintenance over multiple years, like I talked about before with the reactor core overhaul. It could be a planned incremental availability or some kind of a pier side maintenance. It could be a dry docked planned incremental availability where you literally pull the aircraft carrier out of the water and it sits on blocks, which uh, I did in 2005 as the operations officer on the Stennis, which was amazing. So they go through the maintenance phase, and then when they come out and they do sea trials and everything, then we go into the basic phase, which is unit-level training for the ship crew, uh, for the squadrons that are going to be part of the air wing, and they work just with their unit. They go through that advanced readiness program I talked about up at Fallon. 
Um, then we go into the advanced and integrated phase. So advanced phase is where the air wing goes to air wing Fallon, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. And the integrated phase is where now you start to integrate the different squadrons uh, that integrated together up in Fallon are now going to go to the ship, and the ship is going to work with the air wing and the carrier air wing team. Um, then we go through an exercise called the Competitive Training Unit Exercise, or COMP2X, which is sort of the last big thing before deployment. And that's where all the ships in the carrier strike group are going to work with the other ships, with the air wing, and with the admiral staff uh, embarked upon the carrier to work as a fighting unit that you're going to go do when you go overseas. So then you go on deployment, and that can range, you know, back in the day, it was six months of workups, six months of deployment, and come back and kind of stand down for six months of maintenance. That's different now with OFRP, and the deployments have been getting extended because real-world operations have just demanded that we've had air carriers all over the world doing stuff. Yeah. When you come back from deployment, you go into a sustainment phase where you stay ready in case they need to surge you which means we already have, let's say, three carriers on deployment, and we decide we need a fourth maybe to go to the Persian Gulf or, or CENTCOM because of something that happened. And so you'll surge that carrier that came back from deployment but is still ready forward, and then they'll go uh, on deployment again. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, so when we send the carriers out there, uh, can you talk a little bit about you know what those missions are i mean i think most people just think okay these are a huge uh floating uh flight deck uh, but what are the missions that carriers are designed to, to do for the united states so the reason to have ships is to send them to sea you know they would never break or do uh, or, or age or whatever if you kept them uh tied to the pier but that's not what ships are for so we do presence operations which means you're just there and the governments of the countries uh, in that area, the region, are aware of the fact that you've got a carrier strike group there with incredible striking power. So, for instance, in the South China Sea, we'll do presence operations, which means we're just operating there in international waters because we can and we think it's important to do so. It's a way of showing the flag, the American flag. Mm -hmm. And they like to say that an aircraft carrier is four and a half acres of sovereign U.S. territory. Well, that's true. And you put it somewhere... Uh, and everybody notices, and then you've got the you know the ships that go with it, the destroyers and cruisers. Uh, it's a pretty powerful team. Of course, you've got the striking power uh, if you're going to go perform combat operations, and the air wing is the weapon system on the on the ship. You know that's why the carrier is, is a giant floating airport, and the air wing is the weapon system that we use for that. Mm-hmm. And, and the the escorting surface combatants that are with a typical. Uh, carrier, uh, what does that look like? A couple of cruisers, some destroyers. I mean, what, what what's the current makeup that we have? So it it varies. Yes, generally we'll have one cruiser uh, or a DDG, a guided missile destroyer, that acts as uh, the air warfare commander, and uh, we call that the shotgun. And they they basically are there to defend the aircraft carrier itself uh, from an air threat in a way that the air wing. Uh, could also do, but in general, a lot of times the air wing is is flying in combat over the land, and so you need a ship that's near uh, the aircraft carrier that has that uh, kind of primary mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got destroyers, also got a missile destroyers. They will have, uh, you know, cruise missiles for land attack. Um, they carry helicopters, and they can look for submarines. Uh, they can take on other ships in on surface warfare if there was some kind of a conflict uh, with another ship. Uh, so it's a whole team that makes up the carrier strike group. Okay. Uh, 
Uh, so we've you you, you mentioned uh, doing operations in the South China Sea in international waters. We've seen more Western Pacific deployments lately. I think uh, generally framed as a deterrent against the Chinese. Uh, how, mu- how much does China factor into strategic and operational planning, decision making, and preparation for the naval aviation community today? Uh, well, it's it's huge. You know, China and Russia are what we call pacing threats um, because they're the most uh, advanced uh, countries with the advanced militaries uh, that we could potentially face. And China has intentions to exert more influence in the Western Pacific. I mean, you've seen that in lots of different ways. Their economy is very robust and huge. Um, they they think that they should be in charge of the the water masses that around their country, and in some cases we would say uh, farther away from China than the recognized uh, international water limit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the 12-mile limit. or the. Um, so we believe in freedom of navigation in international waters. There's a large part of the global trade that um, goes by sea through the Strait of Malacca off the coast of Singapore, and many of those ships have to go through the South China Sea as they come into different parts of the Pacific. Um, you know, they're opening up the, the northern routes uh, as the ice is melting up in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And so there could be new global routes that go up there from the Pacific to the Atlantic. We think it's important for us to be there and, and show presence because presence operations deter conflict. And we don't want conflict with China. Right. Um, and we, we think that the Western Pacific is an important uh, geopolitical area and, and strategic region for us. And so... We have to prepare in case something were to happen. So the military readiness piece, the carrier uh, naval aviation readiness piece, is a deterrence factor to deter conflict, uh, but but not to deter competition, fair competition in the market. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we have a, a wonderful economic relationship with China that you just can't discount. Yeah, we're actually going to have uh, the, the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command J two uh, Rear Admiral Mike Studeman is going to be on with uh, with us in a couple of weeks. So uh, you might want to listen in on that one because he's sort of a China expert. Uh, so for our audience, yeah. you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Navy Captain Steve Beckbone-Pecos, who now serves as Deputy Assistant Chief of Staff for Readiness to the Commander of Naval Air Forces Pacific. So, Baron, you mentioned uh, the F-35 is joining the fleet, going to go on its first uh, deployment here pretty soon. Uh, What's the difference between the F-35 and the F-18? Well, the F-35 is a fifth-generation aircraft. It's got stealth features built into it. It's our most advanced uh, carrier aircraft. Um, It's a sensor, too, so it's not just a striking platform. And that's important because the way the technology is advanced, you know, we've updated um, kind of our strategic uh, calculus and the way we do things. We do distributed maritime operations where we don't have to have you know, the traditional center of gravity, which is a carrier strike group all steaming in formation together and being in one place and attacking kind of one thing. Um, we work with, you know, you can have two carrier strike groups working together. We can work with the expeditionary strike groups with the Marine Corps on their amphibs with their F-35Bs, uh, and they still have some Harriers. Um, and so the F-35 is, is a great sensor, and it integrates with other platforms, and so it's a big kind of sharing Uh, operation and then i mean it is obviously very capable with its weapons system um interestingly for me you know i always thought that i would never see a carrier aircraft again after the a7 
Corsair that had only one engine because it used to be we'd say if you lose the motor, you lose the jet. Right. And the engines are so much more reliable now that they decided that they only needed to put one engine in the F-35 because they just don't fail like they used to 20, <laughs> 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and so that was something that kind of amazed me as it came along. <laughs> uh, so another topic that uh, that I want to bring up with you, we, we also know that unmanned platforms are, are heavily into development right now, and, and I think they're be- starting to be integrated into carrier wings to a certain extent, uh, MQ-4 or Triton, is that right? Uh, what does that look like for the naval aviators and the flight tech personnel? Uh, what role do you think the unmanned platforms will play in the near future and, and perhaps just 10 years from now? So the MQ-4 Triton is a uh, is a big wing uh, uh, unmanned vehicle that that uh, the VP community that fly the P-8s and uh, used to fly okay. the P-3s they're okay. in charge of. Okay. Um, but the MQ-25 is coming to the carrier air wing, and then we have the MQ-8, which is a helicopter drone. Uh, the MQ-25 is going to be uh, primarily an overhead tanker and a mission tanker. So the nice thing about that is it's a mission that's uh, more benign than, than uh, you know, offensive counter air or strike operations. And so you can have an, an unmanned air, uh, aircraft do that, and it frees up air crew to go do the other missions that maybe have a little bit more decision-making involved. And so being able to put an unmanned aircraft that's a tanker uh, overhead the ship and be able to tank off that and have all the strike fighters focus on being strike fighters instead of having some of them have to be dedicated to the tanking mission, it frees up aircraft and air crew. Um, You know, same thing with the helicopters. If you have one that's unmanned, uh, you can use it for things where you might not want to put an air crew at risk in in some kind of bad weather, or you can focus the air crew in some other mission. Um, You know, we make fun of them because we call them robots um, because they're not manned (laughs) and they're new. But they're really fascinating, and they offer just amazing capabilities. And, and where do you think that capability is going to go over the course of the next decade? I mean, it could go it could go almost anywhere. I, I have a friend who's a retired admiral now who said that he thought the F-35 might be the last manned uh, strike fighter that we would have on an aircraft carrier. Hmm. Uh, that may or may not be true. The technology is certainly getting better and better and better. Um, so it's difficult to say, you know, if, if you asked me this question 10 years ago, would we be where we are now? I don't think I could have imagined it. So I hesitate to guess where we might be in 10 years, but the, the way technology is changing, uh, it could be amazing. Yeah. Uh, so let's, uh, let's swing back out to the Western Pacific. Uh, what can you tell us about the, uh, the People's Republic of China? Their military is called the People's Liberation Army. Uh, and interestingly enough, their Navy is referred to as the People's Liberation Army Navy. Uh, and they actually have aircraft carriers, uh, naval pilots, and aircraft. How far along are the Chinese in their aircraft carrier program? And, and do you think uh, they pose a serious threat to American aircraft carriers today? Um, yeah, excuse me. They, uh, they've made significant strides. So China, like we talked about before, has been spending a lot of money on their military. They've been expanding their military, especially their Navy. They've been um, fielding the platforms and doing the training. They, they never had aircraft carriers, and, and now they do. Um, and they have very advanced fighters. They have very advanced weapons systems. Um, and so they are a threat. So they're not where we are yet, uh, and I don't think they will be for, for any time soon to come. Um, but they're determined to get there. So, you know, 
we're just going to watch and see how it how it uh, develops, and then prepare for you know any kind of contingency. So you have to recognize it took us decades to get to where we are. You know, when we started flying aircraft off aircraft carriers, uh, World War II. You know, at the at the in Pearl Harbor when we had all the battleships sunk, we kind of transitioned to an aircraft carrier centric navy, and then we've just gone on from there with Korea and Vietnam and and the Gulf War and everything. Um, that takes a long time to learn how to do really well, mm-hmm. whether it's just flying off aircraft carriers, whether it's operating as a part of a carrier strike group. But they're determined to do that, and they're working on it. Um, carrier operations are dangerous, and some of the lessons are bought dearly over time, so they're going to be learning those lessons. They already have been. You know, I think their mishap rate, I would guess, is higher now than it will be in the future, which, which would make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the operations are much safer now, and the technology's advanced a lot, but we take their threat seriously. And, and, and I would say, you know, from my perspective as a retired naval intelligence officer, that what, what I think we see right now with the Chinese aircraft carrier fleet is really more of a uh, near-shore, first-island chain power projection capability, not something Absolutely. where they're going to deploy it around the world the way we do our carrier forces. So, Absolutely. And like any nation, they're concerned with their own safety and security mm-hmm. and any nation has a right to secure its own security, right? Um, so that's what they're doing. Uh, so, Baron, we just have a few minutes left. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the last word on this topic. What else should the American public know about the U.S. Navy's aircraft carriers, our naval aviation assets, and, and probably most importantly, our sailors and officers embarked in those ships? Well, thanks, uh, John. I, I would say that you know we're still the best Navy in the world. We have an incredibly professional core of officers and sailors. We've got the best equipment. Your taxpayer uh, dollars are being shepherded very well, the best we can do. We're always learning and trying to innovate and get better. Uh, We're very good, but we always know that we can get better. Um, You know, I would encourage people to investigate if, if they are thinking about joining the Navy to Um, If they're a college graduate or they want to go to college to consider the Naval Academy in Annapolis or the Reserve Officer Training Corps. Um, I I personally went through the University of Southern California, as you introduced, uh, through the Naval ROTC. So I had a scholarship to USC, which is fantastic. We offer the best training in the world. Um, We're going to be around for a long time to come. And I'll tell you what, we're hiring. We need pilots. You know, they're... (laughs) The pilots in the world are going to be back to hiring. Um, we are hiring in the military, and we need uh, fighter pilots. So, you know, when when Top Gun 2 Maverick comes out, we're hoping that that's going to entice <laughs> some people to consider the Navy. Even people like maybe in Minnesota that didn't grow up somewhere like San Diego, where I saw the Navy every day, yeah. uh, to come join us. So on that topic, Top Gun 2, are you going to go see the movie? Oh, we might Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have to. Okay. I want to. All right. So I'll tell you, when Top Gun, the first Top Gun came out in 1986, and uh, I was in the fleet replacement squadron up at Whidbey Island I, when I flew EA-6B Prowlers, and it was a great time to be a pilot in the Navy, um, probably like it was a great time to be a cowboy when Urban Cowboy came out <laughs> back in the early 80s. But Top Gun, for all its flaws and, and uh, you know little mistakes that they made, it's a phenomenal movie that I think has stood the test of time. And now uh, that they're doing Top Gun 2 Maverick, and I've heard you know our former air boss, uh, Admiral Miller, saw it and said it was great. Uh, I'm looking forward to its release. I think Tom Cruise does a great job in that role, and I think the fact that the Navy 
um, has helped out the the film industry with that is just going to make it uh, very realistic and very special. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. So, uh, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our show for today. Uh, Captain Steve Beckbone Pecos, uh, call sign Baron, uh, thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. Look forward to our show again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Again, if you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio. I'll find experts who can join us to address your topic. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Ninety-five point one. The one.